Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day I record them, go to petershift.locals.com and sign up. It only costs $5 a month. The Peter Shift Show. Today's podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN encrypts 100% of your internet data to keep you safe from hackers and eavesdroppers on your network. So go to expressvpn.com gold and get an extra three months free on a one-year subscription package. When I recorded my last podcast on Wednesday, I specifically pointed out a lot of misplaced optimism that had been driving the rally in stocks and were pressuring the price of gold. Well, on Thursday and Friday following that podcast, we got more economic data and corporate earnings news that supported my thesis that the optimism was indeed unfounded. First of all, on Thursday, we got the latest report on the weekly first-time unemployment claims, and they rose again for the third consecutive week, although we've been trending up for a lot more than three weeks. We ended up with 251,000 new claims for unemployment in the most recent week. That is an increase of 7,000 claims, and once again, it was more than the market was expecting. We had 244,000 first-time claims in the prior week, and the consensus was that the more recent week, we would decline to 240,000. The market is always looking for an improvement in claims, yet they continuously get 
a weaker picture. In fact, the four-week moving average is now back above 240,000. It's 240 spot five. These are the highest number of claims since I think October of 2021. Also on Thursday, we got the Philadelphia Fed Manufacturing Index. Now, this is for July. So this number is outside of the second quarter. We're now getting third quarter numbers. And the consensus was for a 0.4. And that would have been an improvement over the minus 3.3 from June. Well, instead of getting an improvement, the index crashed all the way down to minus 12.3. Now, the range of estimates went from a positive 5.3 to a negative 8, and we missed it by a mile, more than 50% below the low end of the consensus range. We also got the leading economic indicators for June on Thursday as well, and the estimate was for a minus 0.5, and that would have been a slight decline over the 0.4 that we got in May. Well, the May number was revised down to minus 0.6, and the June number actually came in at minus 0.8. Now, not only is that a very weak number for a leading economic indicator, but it also marks the fourth consecutive month in a row where the leading economic indicators have been negative. So we have more signs that the economy is not only already in recession, but that the recession is getting worse. And in fact, the worst economic data point that we got on the week came out on Friday, yesterday, and that was the PMI Composite Index for July. Again, another number that's giving us a peak into the third quarter and what we're seeing looks pretty ugly so far the composite index came in at 47 and a half now that was a big drop from the 52.3 that we had to finish out q2 in june now anything below 50 is supposed to indicate recession now the economy was already in recession when the index was still above 50 But now it's going to be an even deeper recession when we're below 50. But even worse was the service sector index because the service sector is the bigger part of the U.S. economy. In fact, the manufacturing sector is not nearly as bad. That index came out at 52.3, not as big a reduction from the 52.7 from the prior month. And it was actually a little bit better than estimates because they were looking for a 51.8. But it was the service sector that really tanked. That went down to 47 even from 52.7 in the prior month. The consensus was for 52.3. But when you have a 47 on the services index, you know the U.S. economy is in recession because the service sector is what everybody looks to to power the economy. After all, we're supposedly the service economy. Well, if the service sector is in recession, the economy is in recession. Now, of course, this is nothing new. This should be obvious, but people have been in denial about the weakness in the economy. All this weak economic data continues to come out, more and more of the recession deniers are going to have to 
throw in the towel and accept reality, including all of the recession deniers at the Federal Reserve. And in fact, the Atlanta Fed is going to be revising its Q2 GDP estimate, I think one more time next week before we eventually get the official first look at GDP for Q2. But I would bet that they're going to lower their estimate currently at 1.6 to the negative to minus 2%, maybe a little bit more. But that would indicate that the second quarter was actually weaker than the first quarter. Now, after we got that negative GDP print in Q1, everybody blew it off. Everybody just assumed it was an outlier and that we would have a much stronger number for the second quarter. But when we end up with an even weaker number for the second quarter, that really throws a bunch of cold water in the face of the idea that we have a strong economy. And given how weak the Q3 data already is, We don't have a lot of July data yet, but it's starting to come in. And what we've seen is pretty ugly. And it makes a lot of sense that the third quarter would be weaker than either of the first two because interest rates are going to be a lot higher in the third quarter than they were back then. Next week, the Fed is set to raise interest rates 75 basis points. We're going to be up to two and a quarter to two and a half. If we were in recession when interest rates were a half a percent, one percent, one and a half percent, think about how much worse that recession is going to be when interest rates are higher. And by the way, interest rates aren't just going up in the United States. They're going up all over the world, including in Europe. Because on Thursday, the ECB did something that it hasn't done in 11 years. It hiked interest rates. And in fact, it hiked them by more than the market was expecting. The consensus was that the ECB was going to move by 25 basis points. Instead, it moved by 50 basis points, which means this is the first time in 11 years that interest rates have been above zero in the eurozone. And this is just the first of many hikes to come. In fact, Lagarde indicated herself that this was just the beginning of the normalization process, that rates are going to be normalized in the eurozone, and that means they're going much higher. And in fact, Lagarde reiterated the Eurozone's commitment to 2% inflation. Now, in the past, it was below 2%. The ECB kept saying, we want inflation to be close to, but below 2%. Apparently now, they don't want to be below. They want to be right on 2%. But if the ECB is going to stick to that goal of 2% inflation over the medium term, whenever that is, A lot more rate hikes are coming than the markets expect because I don't think the European economy is going to see 2% inflation for many, many years. And it's going to take much higher interest rates than anybody currently imagines. And the ECB is ultimately going to deliver those hikes because they have one mandate officially, and that's 2% inflation. They don't have the dual mandate like the Fed with the economy and employment. Their main mandate is 2% inflation. Now, they've been really pursuing a stealth mandate of bailing out all of these pig nations in the Eurozone that have too much debt. And in fact, while Lagarde was talking about hiking interest rates and fighting inflation, she still left the door open. And in fact, there was some type of press release after the press conference where the ECB discussed 
a anti-fragmentation tool, I think designed at helping out countries like Italy or Spain or Greece to keep their interest rates from rising too much higher than, let's say, German interest rates. Now, in the Eurozone, they constantly talk about the spread. And what the spread is, is the difference between, let's say, what the Italians pay to borrow money and what the Germans pay to borrow money. Now, obviously, if Italy is a weaker credit risk, if their fiscal house is not in as good an order as the Germans, you would expect the Italians to pay a much higher rate of interest. Of course, the Italians don't like that, and neither do Italian politicians, so they look to the ECB to try to buy some of their debt to artificially keep that spread narrower so that the Italians are not paying that much more than the Germans. But if the ECB truly wants to fight inflation, then it can't do that asset purchase program. It's going to have to keep raising interest rates. And that means countries like Italy are going to have to pay much higher interest when they borrow money than a country like Germany. Now, there's no way around that. Now, the guard wants to pretend that they have some way of controlling the spread, but really it can't be done. If they are going to meet their inflation goal, there's no way it's going to happen if they keep printing money to buy Italian bonds or Spanish bonds or Greek bonds. They're going to have to get out of the quantitative easing business, and that's going to put a lot of political pressure on politicians in these countries to actually act fiscally responsibly. You know, if you look at the details that the ECB released on the anti-fragmentation tool, the ECB wrote that any countries that apply for this program where the ECB would be buying their debt, the applicant cannot have excessive deficits. There can't be severe macroeconomic imbalances in the country. And in the judgment of the European Commission, the nation must be on a sustainable path with its debt. Well, I mean, all of that is ridiculous because it's only the countries that are not on a fiscally sustainable path that have excess debt. Those are the countries that are going to be applying for the program. So the program itself doesn't make any sense if you're going to deny access to the program to all the countries that need the program. But of course, every country is going to want to avail itself of this program Otherwise, they're just a sucker. That's the moral hazard implicit in doing something like this. Because if the ECB has to print euros to buy Italian government bonds, then everybody in the eurozone is going to have to pay the price in terms of higher inflation. So yes, the Italians will bear part of the cost because they're going to pay higher inflation, but they're also going to get the benefit of lower interest rates because the ECB is buying their debt. Countries like Germany, who are not part of the program, they're going to suffer just as much with higher inflation as the Italians, but they're not going to get the offsetting benefit of having interest rates being lower as a result of the ECB monetizing their debt. And the same will be true for any nation that doesn't avail itself of the program. So since every nation is going to suffer the cost of the program through higher inflation, well, every nation is going to want some part of the benefit by having the ECB buying their debt which means the ECB ends up buying everybody's debt and the only way to avoid it is not to buy any debt. And ultimately, that is what's going to happen and that is going to create a huge 
political problem inside the Eurozone. But the bottom line here is that the ECB is just starting to hike interest rates, whereas the Federal Reserve is just finishing its rate hiking campaign. I think after this July hike of 75 basis points, if we get the 75 basis points, I think the Fed may be done. And if the Fed is finished hiking and the ECB has just started hiking, I think by the end of 2023, short-term interest rates in the Eurozone will be higher than they are in the United States. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A lot of people expect the Fed to hike rates again in September, but two months is a long time. This economy can really deteriorate during the next two months. In fact, we will be officially in a recession two months from now because we will have the data on the second quarter. And if we have two negative quarters of GDP, then we're in a recession. And by the time the Fed does meet in September, it'll be obvious that the third quarter is even weaker than either of the first two quarters. The third quarter is going to be the worst quarter of the year thus far. So it's not just going to be two quarters in a row of negative GDP. It's going to be three quarters in a row with the third quarter being the weakest probably a decline well in the 2%, maybe 3% range for GDP. And what's probably worse, if the Fed does not pivot, Q4 will be an even worse quarter than Q3, especially, I think, for the stock market. I think if the Fed continues on this trajectory of raising interest rates, and more importantly, if it actually follows through with its commitment to ratchet up quantitative tightening, 
I think the fourth quarter of 2022 is going to look a lot like the fourth quarter of 2018, where the markets imploded. And that's when the Fed ultimately cried uncle and gave up that rate hiking campaign at two and a half percent. Initially, it was a pause. And then it was a mid-course correction when they reduced rates a little bit. And then, of course, when COVID hit, they went to zero and they went full-on QE4. I think something similar is going to have to happen. I think in order to avert a fourth consecutive quarter of falling GDP, which would mean the U.S. economy would have spent the entirety of 2022 in recession, I think the Fed is going to pivot. And I think it's going to happen before the end of the year. It may even happen before the end of the third quarter. Now, you have a lot of people who believe that the first rate cuts are going to happen in the first quarter of 2023. But I don't know that the Fed can afford to wait that long, especially with all the political pressure that is going to be mounting on the Fed. Remember, the only reason that the Federal Reserve became worried about inflation and began its commitment to fight it was because the voters finally were worried about inflation. Inflation was so big a problem that it was the number one problem for voters. And that meant it was the number one problem for the politicians, especially the ones in the Biden administration and the Democrats who are in control of Congress right now, but who are facing losing control in the midterms. So it was because voters were worried about inflation that the Fed made it a priority. Well, what happens if voters begin to worry about something else even more than inflation? I mean, they're not going to stop worrying about inflation, but what if they also start worrying about the economy? What if they start worrying about their jobs? That's going to change the political dynamic, and I think that's going to change how the Fed approaches this problem. So I think sometime before the end of the year, the Fed is going to say, we're done hiking rates. You know, we're data dependent now. We're neutral. The next move could just as easily be a cut, depending on the data. They're either going to do that or they're going to outright cut rates. And in addition, I think they're going to continue to monetize debt. I think the balance sheet, which is right now still about $8.9 trillion, in fact, the balance sheet has now grown for the second consecutive week. If you look at the balance sheet, the numbers that came out on Thursday, we had a $3.4 billion increase in the size of the Fed balance sheet that followed the $4 billion increase from the week before. I think the Fed's balance sheet is going to end the year above $9 trillion. It could be quite a bit above $9 trillion. The question is, will the Fed officially launch a new QE program, or will it just be an unannounced stealth program where it just starts expanding its balance sheet without actually having an official commitment to do so? It just ends up doing it by necessity. Using the internet without ExpressVPN is like leaving your keys in your car when you run into the gas station to buy a snack. Sure, most of the time you're probably fine, but what if one time you come back and you see somebody driving off with your car? Every time you connect to an unencrypted network at a cafe, a hotel, or a restaurant, any hacker on the same network can gain access to your personal data, your passwords, financial details, etc. It doesn't take much technical knowledge to hack someone. All that's needed is some cheap hard hardware. A smart 12-year-old can pull it off. Your data is valuable. Hackers can make up to $1,000 per person selling your personal information on the dark web. 
It's time to put a layer of protection between your devices and the internet so hackers can't steal your sensitive data. That's one of the reasons I use ExpressVPN. Go to expressvpn.com gold to learn more. And another reason I personally use ExpressVPN is because I live in Puerto Rico and that means there's a lot of sites in the U.S. that have restricted access from abroad. For example, I pay a lot of bills online, my property tax on my Connecticut home, my electric bill, my water bill, but I can't pay any of those bills from Puerto Rico unless I have ExpressVPN on and I can fool those sites into thinking I'm in Florida. The same thing with a lot of content. I subscribe to CBS All Access, but I can't watch it from Puerto Rico. But because I have ExpressVPN, I can because CBS All Access thinks I'm watching from Florida when I'm actually watching from Puerto Rico. And the best part is that it's super easy to use. Just fire up the app and click one button and you're instantly protected. And it works on all your devices, phones, laptops, tablets, TVs, and more. So you can stay secure while you're on the go. So secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash gold that's expressvpn e-x-p-r-e-s-s vpn.com slash gold today and you can get three months free off a one-year subscription package now of course the markets still haven't figured out what all this means because i think to the extent that more investors are starting to move into the recession camp All of those investors believe that the recession means the inflation problem is over. They expect a weakening economy to weaken inflation. After all, everybody believes that the reason we have all this inflation is because we have this overheated economy. Well, if the economy cools down to the point where it's in recession, well, they just assume that we're not going to have any more inflation. Well, they're wrong. Inflation is not about an overheated economy. In fact, the economy has been in recession all year and we've had inflation. In fact, I was one of the few people who was accurately predicting that both of these things would happen. If you remember on this podcast in the fourth quarter of last year, I predicted that the U.S. economy would be in recession in the first half of 2022. And I'm about to be vindicated on that forecast because hardly anybody had that forecast in late 2021. Everybody was talking about the booming U.S. economy, the red hot labor market. Nobody thought we'd be in a recession as early as the first half of 2022. Most people didn't even think we'd be in recession in 2023, let alone the beginning of 2022. But I stuck to my guns and I was right on that. But not only was I right on the economy being weaker than everybody thought, I was also right on inflation being stronger than everybody thought. Most people back in 2021, even the end of 2021, were still talking about transitory inflation. I was saying not only wasn't inflation transitory, but it was gonna get worse. Remember all the people back then, peak inflation, peak inflation. And I was out there saying that we're nowhere near the peak in inflation. Well, I was right on both of those predictions. The economy was much weaker, I got that right. And inflation was much stronger, I got that right too. What I didn't get right was how the markets would react to being surprised by weakness in the economy and strength in inflation. I assumed the markets would be negative on the dollar and positive on gold. After all, stagflation is bearish for the dollar and bullish for gold. Yet the markets still haven't come around to that way of thinking because they still don't understand 
that a weak economy portends strong inflation. Everybody assumes that the inflation problem is solved. And that's why you're not seeing a rise in the price of gold. That's why you're not really seeing a drop in the dollar because everybody thinks that the inflation problem is going to be solved by this recession. And they also don't believe the recession is going to be nearly as bad as it's going to be. So they don't understand how monetary policy is going to pour gasoline on that inflation fire. And again, it's not just monetary policy. It is fiscal policy. Because as we move into recession, we are going to get fiscal stimulus. The budget deficits are going to get much, much bigger. And of course, the politicians are going to pass new spending programs to deal with the weakness. Maybe there's going to be a fresh round of stimmy checks in the mail. Who knows? We're going to get fiscal stimulus, but we're also going to get monetary stimulus. The Fed is not going to sit there on the sidelines as the economy plunges into depression. It's obviously going to be forced to do something. And what can it do? Print more money, cut interest rates, inflation. In fact, what so many people don't seem to understand is that the biggest inflations historically have taken place in weak economies. Inflation is generally not a problem that strong economies have to deal with. Inflation is something you get when you have a weak economy. Why is that? Well, in a weak economy, you have less production. So you have a diminished supply of goods and services in a weakened economy. But also governments in a weak economy are pressured to try to stimulate that economy by printing money and spending money and running deficits. So that is the most toxic combination. We've already got a small taste of that now as a result of what happened during COVID. Well, we're about to get a full belly full of that same toxic medicine and the effects are going to be even more pernicious next time than they were last. Taking a look at how the markets did react to all this weak economic news on Thursday and Friday, we had a sharp rise in the treasury bond market. In fact, the yields across the board now are all below 3%. The 30-year treasury is down to 2.97%. But what's more important is the yield curve. The six-month treasury bill rate is 2.9%. The 12-month is 2.96%. That is above the five-year, which is at 2.84, and the 10-year, which is at 2 spot 75. A couple of months ago, the five-year was the high point of the curve. We were over 3.5% on five-year treasuries. We're down to 2.84%. We're pretty much flat across the board, really, from six months to 30 years. In fact, the 12-month yield and the 30-year yield are basically identical, and you have a negative sloping yield curve from the six-month all the way down to the 10-year. What is that telling you? That is screaming recession. This is the most inverted the yield curve has been and the flattest the yield curve has been. So the markets are correct to factor in a recession, but they are incorrect to factor in a drop in inflation. Inflation is going to get worse. Even if we have a few months where it gets better, It's only getting better before it gets much worse. See, again, the bond market is clueless because investors believe the beginning of recession means the end of inflation. 
They have no idea that inflation is going to kick into a much higher gear as a result of this recession because the Fed is going to usher in massive monetary stimulus. We're going to get massive fiscal stimulus and the U.S. dollar is going to tank. And we have had the benefit of a strong dollar so far in this inflation cycle, which has helped to keep the inflation even lower than it otherwise would have been. Well, now we're going to see how much higher inflation gets when we go from having a strong dollar to having a weak dollar. And in fact, we did get a big drop in the dollar on Thursday and Friday. The U.S. dollar index finished the week around 106.5. And that was down 108 from the prior week. In fact, we almost closed on the lows. And in fact, the dollar was lower intraday on Friday. It traded as low as 106 spot one. That's down better than three points from the 109.2 high from a couple of weeks ago. And I mentioned on the last podcast The dollar looked like it might have topped out. I'm waiting for a move below 105 to more officially confirm that. But if I were to go out on a limb, I would say that I think the dollar has in fact peaked and it's headed lower. But I would like to see a close below 105 to have more conviction to that forecast. But given the weak economic data that we're getting and the weak economic data and earnings data that is yet to come, I think the odds look pretty good that we do in fact have a top in the dollar. And if we have a top in the dollar, then we probably have a bottom in gold. And I talked about the sell-off in gold on my last podcast. In fact, that Wednesday when I recorded it, Gold for the first time closed below 1700 and it looked to me like we were trying to reach for some stops that were probably hanging out below 1700 these sell stops. And in fact, on Thursday morning, gold opened very weak. We were below 1680 on the lows before the gold market reversed later in the morning following the weak economic data. And then it continued to rise on Friday following the weak economic data we got. In fact, gold went all the way up to 1740 as an intraday high before surrendering most of those gains, but still settling $8 higher at 1727. And I think to me, it looks like that that move below 1680 Thursday morning may in fact be the low when it comes to the price of gold. Now, we weren't seeing any indication of that in the gold mining stocks, which were all weaker again on Friday. The GDX was down 1.3% and the GDXJ was down 1.4%. Now, neither of these indexes made new lows for the move, which I guess is somewhat encouraging, but it might have been good to see these stocks rally on Friday. But again, most people are still in the camp that a weak economy is bad for gold because they think a weak economy means no more inflation and so no reason to buy gold. So in most people's eyes, gold loses no matter what. If inflation is high, gold loses because the Fed keeps fighting it with high interest rates. And if inflation goes away, well, who needs gold? So gold loses in that scenario as well. What investors still don't understand 
is that this high inflation is only bearish for gold to the extent that the Fed is able to be successful in getting rid of inflation. The high interest rates have to be high enough to actually bring inflation back down to 2%. But if the Fed is unable to contain high inflation, if high inflation is here to stay, in fact, if high inflation gets worse, then that is bullish for gold. And that is exactly what's going to happen because investors still haven't figured out that inflation is here to stay. Because as much as the Fed claims it wants to get rid of inflation, it's not willing to do it if it's going to cause an even bigger problem. The Fed is going to have to choose between the lesser of two evils. And I think the Fed is going to make the political choice that high inflation is better than the alternative or less bad than the alternative. Because the alternative is a much worse financial crisis than the one we had in 2008, only no bailouts, and one that's going to cause a lot of people who didn't lose money back then to lose a tremendous amount of money, including people who are currently living off of government entitlements. They're going to see huge cuts if the Fed is really going to choose to get rid of inflation, no matter the consequence. I think the Fed is going to choose to allow inflation as an acceptable trade-off for something that it perceives to be much worse. Now, in the end, the Fed's going to be wrong. Inflation is going to be much worse, but it's going to be much worse in the long run. And politicians, and that's all central bankers are, politicians, they always prefer problems in the future to problems in the here and now, especially if those problems in the future happen after some subsequent election and they don't even care if the future problems are worse than the current problems that they would experience if we did the right thing because those future problems, well, they're somebody else's problem. They're going to happen on somebody else's watch. All we care about is what happens right now before the next election while we're still in charge. Because who cares what happens on somebody else's watch? Because that's their problem to deal with, not ours. In addition to weak economic data confirming that the economy is in recession, we also got news from corporate America confirming what should already be obvious. The debacle du jour on Friday was Snap. Snap came out with earnings that disappointed investors and the stock crashed by 39% in one day. The stock is now down 88% from its 2021 high just 10 months ago. Now, why did Snap have such a miss in its earnings? Well, Snap is one of those companies that relies on advertising for its revenue, just like a lot of these big tech companies that are websites. They don't charge people to use the service. They charge advertisers to advertise to all these people who are using the service for free. Well, this should not have been a shock to anybody, certainly anybody listening to my podcast, but unfortunately, most investors don't listen to my podcast. This is another reason why they should. But I have been warning for a long time on this podcast that I thought some of the biggest casualties of this recession were going to be those tech companies that rely on advertising revenue. Because I know that all of these companies rely on the same advertisers. It's the same group of companies 
that are advertising on all these websites. In fact, they advertise on my podcast and lots of podcasts. You have the same group of advertisers that are simultaneously supplying revenue to all of these mega tech companies. Now, of course, the stocks have high PEs, so they put a big multiple on those revenues, but ultimately the revenues are coming from the same source. Well, if you have all these companies that depend on the same advertisers, who do these advertisers depend on? The same customer base. Well, that customer base is broke. I have been talking about that. The consumer doesn't have the discretionary income anymore to buy all the products and services that are being advertised on all these platforms. The consumer is drowning in debt and spending whatever money they have on higher grocery bills, higher energy bills, utilities, insurance, taxes, rent. They don't have money left over to buy the goods and services that these advertisers have been paying to advertise. And so they're going to be cutting back and these stocks are going to get killed. In fact, a lot of other stocks were dragged down on Snap's coattails on Friday. Look what happened to Meta. That's the former name of Facebook. That stock was down 7.6% on Friday. It's now down 56% from its high. Alphabet, which is Google, dropped 5.8% on the day. That was the biggest one-day drop for Google since March of 2020. And that was when the stock market was tanking during COVID before the government came out with all the bailouts, 0% interest rates in QE. So apart from that day, this is the worst day that Google has had. Look at Pinterest. That's another one of these stocks. Came public not too long ago down 13.6% on Friday. That stock is now down 77% from its 2021 high. And of course, it's not just these big sites that depend on ad revenue. You have a lot of companies that operate in the online marketing space. They help put companies together with advertisers. I never heard of most of these companies, but I took a look at their stocks. Magnite, The symbol is MGNI. That stock was down 6.8% on Friday. It's down 78% from its 52-week high. Got a company called The Trade Desk. Symbol is TTD. That stock dropped 7.3% yesterday. It's down 59% from its high. And Pubmatic, P-U-B-M is the ticker symbol there. It was down 9.8% on Friday. It's down 66% from its high. So again, this is more confirmation of the weakness in the consumer. All I hear is people talking about how strong the consumer is because unemployment is so low. Don't people realize that the consumer is weak? In fact, the reason we're creating all these jobs is because the consumer is so weak. He needs a second job and a third job. And people aren't getting second and third jobs to buy luxury goods, to to buy discretionary purchases. They're only taking these extra jobs because it's the only way to pay the rent. It's the only way to put food on the table. It's the only way to keep the electricity on. That's why people are giving up their leisure for crappy second and third jobs. It's not because they're strong. It's because they're so weak. And in fact, we got more evidence of the weakness of the consumer on Thursday with the earnings from AT&T. 
AT&T stock was down 7.6% on Thursday and another 2.7% on Friday. So a 10.2% drop in AT&T in two days. Now the stock is now down 14.8% from its 52-week high, but that means before today, AT&T was only down 5%. It was hanging in there pretty good. It was actually thought of as a defensive stock. After all, consumers are going to keep paying their phone bill, right? Wrong. Because one of the problems with the AT&T earnings announcement was they admitted that their customers are falling behind on their phone bills. Think about that. People aren't paying their cell phone bill. The bills are in arrears, and that is one of the reasons that earnings are down, and that's why the stock is going down, because customers aren't paying their phone bill. Now, what does that tell you about the weakness of the consumer? They are doing everything they can to keep their economic necks above water, even not paying their phone bills. Because, you know, paying their electric bill probably takes priority. Buying food takes priority. Yes, people like cell phones, but maybe they're willing to make a trade-off here. Maybe you're going to see people downgrading their service. Maybe they're going to buy fewer minutes or less data or maybe if they have multiple phones in their family maybe they'll take the phones away from the kids that are now on a family plan who knows maybe more people are going to start switching from companies like AT&T to Mint Mobile and save money that way who knows but the consumer is doing everything he or she can to cut back to dig in their heels and hunker down in a recessionary economy with inflation, even at the expense of things like their cell phone bill. And so if companies like AT&T, who you thought would have been defensive because consumers can't give up their cell phone, well, if some of them are cutting back there, then what does that say about the rest of the industries that weren't thought to be as defensive as AT&T? Because if consumers aren't paying their phone bills, what other bills aren't they paying? What other luxuries are they giving up? Well, I think we're going to find out next week because we have a lot more earnings announcements from big companies, including big tech, on deck for next week. And my money is that these reports are going to disappoint and they're going to be further evidence of just how weak this economy is now and how much weaker it's going to get. And another factor a lot of people are overlooking is that the moratorium on interest and principal payments on student loans is still in effect. I think it's supposed to expire around October, but as of right now, consumers are still struggling with their phone bills or with their rent or their utilities or their grocery bills, and they're not even paying their student loans. Imagine what happens in the fourth quarter when all of these people with student loans now have to start making payments. They're going to have even less money left over for discretionary purchases, let alone the stuff they have to buy, like food and energy. Now, maybe the politicians are going to extend that moratorium. After all, there's an election coming up around then. And so maybe the politicians will look to buy the votes of former students by continuing the relief when it comes to payments on their student loans. But what's the excuse going to be? Because the excuse before was COVID. The country was in lockdown. People didn't have jobs. 
Well, if unemployment is supposedly so low and the economy is still good, even though it's in a recession, what is the justification for continuing the moratorium on student loans? And if it is continued, what does that say? Because regardless of what they do, it's a disaster because if they don't continue it, well, then people are going to be struggling to make those payments and spending is going to implode. But if they do continue it, then that's a huge moral hazard to take on even more student loans. That is carte blanche to colleges to jack up tuition even higher. And if we extend it again, even though we're not in an emergency, just because the economy is weakening somewhat, if we make moratoriums on payments on student loans, just a standard tool in the government's recession fighting toolkit, it's never going to end. And of course, it'll become an entitlement. People will feel entitled to not having to pay off their student loans. Forget about forgiveness. Why forgive loans that you don't have to make payments on anyway? What politician is going to want to vote to take away the moratorium? It's going to be like another third rail of politics, like Social Security, because there are so many people that owe so much money in student loans. The surest way to lose their vote is to tell them they have to start making payments again. So if we make this permanent, then it's even worse for the economy. Apart from the moral hazard, it's more inflation because the government loses a lot of revenue when it no longer collects payments on student loans and has to cover the private loans that it's guaranteed. Where does all that extra money come from? Well, they're not raising anybody's taxes. They're just printing more money, so it's more inflation. So whatever they decide to do on student loans, it's going to be bad for the economy. The only question is, in what form do we swallow this economic poison? But if the Federal Reserve continues to hike interest rates and continues pretending that inflation is its top priority, which is a reason I believe it's going to drop the pretense, it's going to focus its attention to the weakening economy, not inflation, and that has major implications for my investment strategy, for the U.S. dollar, and for the precious metals markets, for emerging market stocks, and anybody listening to this podcast should take advantage of the current exchange rate for the dollar, the weakness and low prices in precious metals mining stocks before this revelation wakes up more investors who have been in a complete slumber before they awaken to reality. You have this small window of opportunity now to really increase the size of your non-US dollar investments particularly those related to gold and silver mining. I've been talking about that on this podcast recently. These are incredible prices, in my opinion, prices that we will likely never see again in our lifetime once this turns around. And before it happens, you want to load the boat. And that means calling up your representative that you're working with at Europe Pacific Capital, Europe Pacific Asset Management, Talk to the representatives about shift gold, to buy more physical gold, more physical silver. And if you're a real risk taker, to really go all in on these precious metals mining stocks. And that means taking a good look at my gold fund, the Euro-Pacific Gold Fund, managed by Adrian Day. Or if you're a larger investor, set up a separately managed account where Adrian manages a portfolio of mining stocks for you. You have an incredible entry opportunity right now 
As I said, I don't think we'll ever see these low prices again, in my opinion. And once this market turns, I think this is going to be a rocket ship headed straight up. And before we leave the launch pad, you want to make sure that you're on board and buckled up.